0: Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Air, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash air. We're going to get to work. We've got to be in Genesis. We get to be in Genesis 34 this morning. Which, if you've uh, glanced ahead last week, you realized this is not going to be a very fun chapter to be in. This is uh, this is some tough stuff. In Genesis 34, we kind of go through this cycle, right, of like really shining moments of of God doing something amazing in His people and making great promises to them, and even great steps of faith for in the people of God, trusting God, and then really dark, hard moments. And that's what Genesis 34 brings to us this morning. So as just a matter of getting through the text, we're going to read Genesis 34 and then get right into it. So I invite you to open up your Bibles, uh, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, to uh, Genesis chapter 34. <clears throat> Genesis 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done." But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and, also, and, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said, uh, also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask for me a great bride price, a, and gift as, as great and, of bride price and gift as you will, and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, We cannot do this thing. To give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone." Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell to, to give us them their, our daughters, will they dwell with us to become one people on this condition? When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, and all who went out of the gate of his city." On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister, They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Jacob said, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. So this book, yeah, this isn't that fun chapter? This book is a book primarily about God not about you. We return to this theme. Hopefully you hear this over and over again from us. This is a book primarily about God. It has much to say to us about the nature and character of God and the point and the purpose of everything. So when we come to a chapter like this in Genesis chapter 34, it's important to keep that in the front of our minds. Why do why we want to keep the, that in front of our minds that this is a book about God, not primarily about us? Well, because this chapter doesn't really have a lot to recommend to us. It doesn't have a lot of good uh, to, in it. It doesn't have much to recommend itself to us. We see worldliness. We see sexual violence. We see parental apathy. We see revenge. We see sacrilege. All play a huge part in this narrative. Nothing of this content is to be commended to any of us. And what does that reality say to, to us? What does that reality say to us? And one way to read passages like this is to just read them as a cautionary tale, right? Don't do these things. See how much bad came from these sorts of actions. Don't emulate them. Do, do differently. Don't be like them. And as far as it goes, that's true. Like, don't, don't be like this. Stories like this, they, they are not to be... Uh, uh, Reproduced in among the people of God, these are bad moments. So ideas like "don't do this," yeah, that's that's a good takeaway at some level. But as you as we'll see, you you shouldn't follow the lure of Dinah. You shouldn't follow and take advantage of of people like Shechem does. You shouldn't use religious cover for your own self gratification. You shouldn't seek retributive and exorbitant revenge taking these things away from the narrative are good things. But that's a lot about us, isn't it? That is reading the Bible in such a way to say that it just, well, Jim even mentioned it before our our previous song, a list of do's and don'ts. And that this book, if we read it that way, all this really is doing is just telling us certain activities we should do and certain activities we shouldn't do. And if that is all that this book is about, Ultimately, what it is going to produce in you is sorrow and despair or deceitfulness. If this book is just about do's and don'ts, and so that's such that we walk out of these doors this morning knowing, okay, don't do all these bad things and try to do these good things. You're going to end up either deceived because you think that you somehow in your own power are keeping God's law, so you're going to lower it down and say, oh, these are the, I'm going to, I don't, boy, I'd, I've never been like Shechem, so I must be righteous. Or, you know, you walk out and you think, oh, I'm doing good. They'll, they'll either produce in us a, a lying to ourselves like the Pharisees who think that we have it all together, or it will crush us because we walk out these doors with this list of do's and don'ts, a big backpack that we put upon ourselves to, to go out into the world and, and do good or don't do evil, and then what do we discover? I really, I'm, I'm, I fail. <laughs> Maybe not to the degree of Shechem and all of these, uh, these people, not to the degree of, of the brothers of Dinah as they enact a horrendous revenge upon Shechem and Hamor and their people. Maybe not to that extent, But we commit acts of the same kind, if not in the same manner, the same extent. Sins of the same kind, maybe not from the same degree. All sin is against God and is damnable. And so no matter how, what kind of a burden we might tie up upon ourselves, we are going to find ourselves either deceived and thinking, oh yeah, I've, I of my own power have pleased God today or we're gonna find ourselves wrecked because I mean, and maybe you could be honest enough and think about moments of your life where you've wanted to do the right thing, you've wanted to please God and you found yourself doing the total opposite. It's the same thing as what Paul talks about right there in Romans 7. The very thing I want to do, I end up not doing. And the thing I don't want to do, that's the thing I end up doing. And so if the Bible, if we read it only as something about us and what we must do, we were misreading this book, this is a book about God, who he is, What he is doing. And so when we come to Genesis 34, yes, there's lots of don't be like this, but we have to look a little deeper. What is this saying about God? What is this revealing about his nature and his character and what he's doing in the world and what is our place in the midst of that? That's where we want to dig down to. So, what does then Genesis 34 communicate to us about God? He's not even mentioned. The the only only time that even God-like language is talked about is when they mention circumcision. That's this covenantal right for the males of God's people. This is covenantal right that they have between them and God, that every male among them ought to be circumcised. That's commanded back in Genesis earlier with Abraham, right? And so we have this covenant of circumcision. So God is kind of acknowledged as being around, but he's not really talked about in this passage. So we have to to remember, this is a long process, and this in chapter 34 is part of this long process that God has undertaken to redeem a people for himself. And so then, as God is on this mission, we could say to make a people for himself that have fallen away that have rebelled in the fall and have transgressed against him god is on this major mission to redeem a people back for himself we shouldn't be surprised that in the midst of that what we find is a bunch of broken people <laughs> we find we find that god's people are not this pristine perfect bunch of uh, you know little gl- god glorifiers every moment of every hour of their day they're full of they're they're a mess they're a mess they, they are not sufficient in and of themselves to please God. They're needing constantly outside help. And so I think one of the big ideas that, that I want to put forward for us from this morning, a big idea coming, I think, from chapter 34 is that God doesn't work on behalf of perfect people. He works on behalf of His people. He works on behalf of His people. Jacob is a mess. His sons are a mess. This whole situation is a mess. It is, nothing has changed. You look around at the world today and at your life today and think of all the letdowns and mess ups and all the the failures and all the really actually tragic, awful things that happen at moments. Broken families, families doing terrible things to one another. All sorts of really wicked, detestable things happen in our broken world. Do they not? And yet, that doesn't disqualify us from being a part of the people of God. God doesn't work on behalf of perfect people waiting for us to get our lives together that he might then bless us. He has his people and he works on behalf of them. So in this last, in the chapter previously, what Jim was preaching on, there's this return and this reconciliation, right, between Jacob and Esau. And oh, thank goodness they're reconciled. Everything's going to be rosy now. no. It isn't. And, and in fact, we see that Jacob comes back and I don't know if it's, I don't want to make too much of it, but if you look at the end of chapter 33, he's coming back from Paddan Pad Aram And he camps before the city of Shechem. This is a familiar place. He buys it with some money, right? He buys a plot of land. Uh, The Shechem, this is actually where Joseph, when he's brought back from Egypt, they're going to bury his bones 400 years later on this land that Jacob buys. So it's kind of cool how all this storyline kind of ties together. But Jacob, it almost seems like he's lured by the world in some sense. The cities in Genesis are not great places. Like, they just don't have a good reputation. Think of cities like Babel. Uh, that doesn't, doesn't go well there. Think of Lot and Abram when they separate and, and they look and, and Sod- or Sodom, Lot looks over at the valley and he sees this wonderful city of Sodom and Gomorrah before it was ruined, and he goes and moves to the city. And then what happens? Well, Sodom and Gomorrah, we know, is this place of of destruction and and terror. And so these cities, they don't have a great reputation in the book of Genesis. And Jacob kind of is lured here to the city, possibly. But trouble then shows up for Jacob and his family. And we see this clearly with Dinah. Dinah is lured by the ways of the world. And you see that, this this language, we kind of read right over it, but it is communicating something In that very first verse of chapter 34, Dinah, daughter of Leah, she goes out to see the women of the land. She longed to look into what the women of the land were about. And what's meant by going out to see the women of the land, Dinah is drawn to what the people of the world are doing. In contrast to what the people of God were doing, she's looking at culture and worldliness and, and, and possibly beauty and, and what the latest fads are, what the latest trends are. She wants to be in the know. She wants to be around the influencers, what you would call them today. They're the influencers. And she longs to look into these things of the world. It's, it's like the parable of the seeds that Jesus tells, right? He talks about these four different types of seeds. Mark chapter 4, it's in all the synoptic, synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, John is not one of the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three similar gospels telling a lot of the same stories. But one of the places that is told in Mark chapter 4 tells the story, right, of the parable of the seeds. And there's four kinds, and the third kind is thrown out and it grows up among the thorns, right? And it grows, and you think it's doing good, but then the way that that Mark communicates this teaching of Jesus, he says that that seed is choked out by the thorns. It's spoiled because of the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. The lure of the world grows up around this seed that is in thorny soil, and those thorns, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires of the things of the world, grow up and they choke out the seed that is growing. There's a word of real caution here. You know, nobody keeps uh, intentionally a patch of Creeping Charlie growing in their yard. Does anybody else have Creeping Charlie in their yard? Like, I don't spray my yard. We're organic, right? (laughs) And so my yard has tons of Creeping Charlie in it. But if you really don't want, if you want to have a nice green lawn, you can't have Creeping Charlie growing everywhere. But so when you want to get rid of Creeping Charlie you spray the whole thing. You don't say, okay, here's a five by five foot patch that I'm gonna keep nothing but creeping Charlie in, spray everything around it. Because what happens, you keep that, that creeping Charlie is very resilient and it finds a way to spread out and ruin the whole yard. That just this little patch, nobody keeps planters of creeping Charlie to plant to grow into their yard if they want a nice yard. And that's sin, it it goes, sin goes, creeping Charlie goes farther and faster than you want it to. Musk thistles are the same way. My childhood was like out in the fields pulling heads of musk thistles and putting them in feed bags so that the seed didn't spread and cutting them down and spraying toward on in the, in the bottom of the roots because you had to get rid of musk thistles, right? Nobody, you don't leave one up because there's thousands upon thousands of seeds in this little thistle. You've got to eradicate it, right? This is what the lure of the world is like. This is what sin is like. Sin will always take you farther than you want to go. Sin will always take you farther than you want to go. Um, when it comes to sin, the only safe course of action is to kill it is to get rid of it, is to eradicate it, is to flee from it. Jesus is so radical, right? That when he says if if your right hand is causing you to sin, to cut it off, better to enter into heaven without a hand than to keep both hands and enter into hell. And that's his, he's not literally talking about self-mutilation, but it's the idea of the seriousness of sin. Get rid of it. Kill it. It will always take you farther than you want to go. Frodo and Bilbo and Gollum all in the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, right? They're all after this one ring. And, and they have this moment. They find out that once you start putting on the one ring, I hope you know the Lord of the Rings. If you don't, uh, the movies are fine. They're really good. Watch the movies. Uh, the audiobook is really good. If you don't like to read, get the audiobook. Read the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's great. Uh, and The Hobbit. But they have this ring. And what they find out is that the more that they wear it, they're just going to use it here and there. But the more and more they use it, the ring takes them farther than they want to go until finally you become Gollum, this, this, this creature that's totally distorted and ruined by a simple desire for a very, just, just a small permission of wearing the one true ring, right? And that's what sin is like. It draws you farther and farther. I could talk about Samwise Gamgee and how he only wore it once. And, but anyway, we won't, we won't go. I won't nerd anymore on the Lord of the Rings stuff. But sin, it takes you farther than you want to go. This is not to give permission to Shechem and his sexual violence against Dinah. That is heinous in and of itself. But there is some reality here of sin will pull you farther than you attend. Flee it. Giving in to some sort of sexual temptation, be it through a device, be it through face-to-face, however it may be. Giving in to that temptation. You may think you're only giving in this time for your own purposes and your own fulfillment and your own reasons. But it will take you further than you want to go. Sin. This is what sin does. It reproduces itself in your life. Flee from it. The anger that you feel in the moment and have an outburst of anger feels so good in the moment and right to just be able to unload and not be slow to anger, but to be quick to anger. But that sin takes you further and it has bigger consequences than you intended to have. Sin always takes you farther than you want to go. Materialism, consumerism starts with just a simple confession. Maybe you've said something like this to yourself. You know, I deserve it. I work hard. I deserve this, this thing. And that isn't to say we can't buy and, and spend our money as God has given us. But materialism and consumerism begins to drag you deeper and deeper and farther and farther into debt because it's just sin, selfishness, it just compounds over and over again. Sin will always take you further than you want to go. That's why John Owen talks about, Romans chapter 8, actually talks about be killing sin. Uh, One of the big things of John Owen, a Puritan writer, Mortification of Sin and Believers, one of his famous sayings is Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. This is not to say that Dinah got what she deserved, by no means. The next event's terrible and shameful. She's captured, she's violated. Shechem sees her, desires her, captures her. There's no romance here. The language is one of violence, is one of capturing. He captures Dida and he abuses her and then decides he'd like to marry her. That's not how that's supposed to work. (laughs) It's not how that's supposed to work at all. Not to mention the intermarrying of these peoples, that God's people are to be holy and separated for himself. But... Needless to say, this is not how this is supposed to go. We got a lot of 34 left to get into now. So then Jacob's uh, passivity is, is so heartbreaking. His daughter is captured, still caught up with Shechem and his family. They come back, he hears word and he keeps his peace. And he's, he's passive about the, the, the ruin of one of his children. He's passive about it. His daughter's been captured and violated. I think just briefly, you could say father's, Parents, don't play passive in the lives of your children. Care for them, defend them, correct them, encourage them, pursue them. Pursue them. Pursue your kids. They need you. Instruct them, parent them. But instead, Dinah's brothers, they use their deceit to enact a revenge. Which really isn't surprising. Jacob's kids, they use deceit. (laughs) Jacob, who uh, lies repeatedly to get what he wants right out of his father, and he steals the blessing. Is it not surprising that Jacob's kids, they're deceivers? Well, yes, they are. They lie, and they say, oh, sure, we'll marry with you, right? If the males of your group will just get circumcised. This is a creative solution. It's terrible, but I mean, that's pretty creative to just say, listen, you'll go through this religious rite that we require of all of our men because we're so righteous and upright that we want you to observe our rituals. But all in the background, they're using the things of God to further their own purposes. You know what's that's maybe one of the most disgusting things about this passage. And I don't say that to belittle the sexual violence committed against Dinah. One of the most disgusting things here is God's people using a religious uh, call, a religious plea, a religious institution to covering it in a veneer of righteousness to just do what they want to do. And that, that has got to be so grieving to the heart of God. It's called sacrilege. It's taking things that are sacred and just tarnishing them, just ruining them, making them into nothing, just, just ruining God's purposes. They're using re- a religious veneer to conceal a poison dagger, using God and his ways to callously just get what they want. There are really... If you would take time to reflect on this, probably countless smaller ways that we are tempted to do this. This is a typical human instinct. We are, because of the incurvatus inse, the Latin term for, for bent in upon ourselves. We, we, since the fall, we are so self-consumed that it is we do it without thinking about it. Think, how can I use this thing to get better for me? to just accomplish my purposes. We do this without, we don't have to sit around and think hard about it. It's just our natural reaction, using the things of God to just get our own self-interest met. The Pharisees did this in Jesus' day, right? There's the weird story about they're supposed to take care for their parents and they say, oh, well, that money's korban. That money's given to God. They had a rule set up that said, oh, well, if my money's korban, it's given to God, I can't use it to support you or to help you because it's got to go to God. All the while, they're using the money to really just help themselves. There was a religious veneer to get just what they wanted to serve their own sinful, selfish Desires. Don't disguise your selfish pursuits with a religious veneer. Don't commit sacrilege. Don't use churchiness as a way to gain something, favor with people, or or, or, or you know some sort of permission to try to better a bad reputation. Don't use the grace of God as an excuse for sinful behavior. It grieved my heart when I I heard this story of a pastor who's not in town anymore, no one that that you need to think about who they were, but a pastor who, you know, was committing uh, sinful things, sinful actions, all upon the premise of, and, and basically lightly throwing around, our God is a gracious God. Our God is a gracious God. Using this veneer of religiosity to cover his own sinfulness and how shameful that is. Don't use the grace of God as an excuse for your sinful behavior. Oh, God will forgive me. That is sacrilegious. Saying that, oh, God's grace is sufficient, so I guess if I want to go and sin against him, well, he'll be gracious to me. That is presuming upon God's grace. Don't do these things. Don't do them. And so, on in chapter 34, they wait three days when the men are most sore. We understand why, okay? We understand why these men are the most sore at three days and they decimate him. This is John Wick before John Wick, right? This is, they just, they kill everybody. Everyone is dead and they steal it and all the possessions for themselves. Getting vengeance, not just justice for the rape or the, 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 uh, the essential prostitution of their sister. This is, this is vengeance, Underneath this justification of its justice. But you know what's weird? They take all the women of the city to themselves. So they're all mad about this idea of intermarrying, but they're hypocrites. Because then they go and they commit all of these atrocities. Calling it a mess is actually a colossal understatement. So what are we to do with all of this? The people of God must view passages like these in a couple of ways. First, they point to the need to abandon sin. The people of God must abandon sin. Dishonors God, it ruins you. Sin unrepented of, sin that that you will own your sin in that final day. For all those who are outside of Christ, if you have not turned from your sins and trusted in Christ as the sufficient Savior, as the one who's took your punishment upon himself, you will bear the weight of that sin in a, in a place called hell for eternity, which is the conscious torment of, of unbelievers throughout eternity, bearing the just wrath they deserve because of their sin. And in that place of sin, in that place of hell, they continue in their rebellion, mad at God, angry at him that he would not do what they wanted him to do, that, they would, that God would not bow down to them, and they will persist And their judgment forever. The people of God then must flee sin, abandon sin. Look at the ugliness it produces. Look at how it doesn't show the nature and character of God. Look how it doesn't show the goodness and the distinctiveness of God's people, just as messed up as the cultures around them. Then, the people of God, they are to hear the call of Christ for deliverance from the punishment of our own transgression and the empowerment of the spirit to put to death the sins in ourselves. I'm thinking of passages like Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says that he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sin. Something like Romans eight thirteen, which says that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What are we to do with this? Confess sin. As sin. Flee from sin. And then when you do find yourself in a place of you have done what you did not want to do or didn't do what you wanted to do, confess sin as sin. Don't cover it over with some religious veneer. Confess sin as sin. Repent and turn from it. There is forgiveness. You do not have to go to an eternal damnation. You do not have to bear the weight of your sin and the punishment for your sin. You can be delivered. You can be what the Bible calls forgiven through faith in the work of Christ who lived the righteous life you should have lived, I should have lived, but failed to, and then suffered on the cross the wrath of God in our place. In our place condemned he stood and with his, with his blood sealed our pardon. This is what Christ has done. Confess sin, repent and turn from it. Trust Christ and his sufficiency to secure your forgiveness and then seek to walk by the spirit putting sin to death. But ultimately, hear those calls, please. If you don't know the forgiveness found in Jesus Christ for a walk that has gone away from him time and time again, please hear this. There is mercy and grace. Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. (laughs) This is the work. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is what Christ has come to do, to save people for himself. So confess sin is sin, repent and turn from it, trust Christ. And then ultimately, what the people of God ought to do, having gone through that reality, having placed their faith and trust, not in themselves but in Christ, they ought to marvel at God's faithfulness to his promises for his people. I have to emphasize the first consequence of the reality of sin. We cannot take God's faithfulness to work His purposes through His people as license to sin. See, God's going to be faithful, and although the, all of these people were terrible, God's still going to use them and work His purposes. That is never meant to be used as license to see. Well, It doesn't matter what I do. God's going to be faithful. He's faithful to His people. He's faithful to His people. But God's care for His people is meant to be a warm, dry shelter on cold nights. You're a Has that happened to you lately in this past few weeks? Where you're just glad to be at home under a blanket, and you can hear the wind hitting your wall. Maybe your houses are better, uh, better shaped than mine is, but you can hear the wind hitting the, raising the 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 little awning outside of your house. You can hear that wind hitting. and You're just so thankful to be in a warm place, protected, comforted, uh, resting easy, at peace in a stormy, awful place. And if you were outside of your house, it would mean the end of your existence. It would mean your death. The peace that comes through Christ, this gospel, God's care for his people, places like Genesis 34, where we see God being faithful in spite of all of his people's mess, is meant to be a warm, dry shelter on cold nights. It's meant to guard our hearts when we do fail and sin against our own desires and when circumstances around us seem to point towards our failure and destruction. Are you a part of the people of God? Do you belong to Him through the adoption that comes through Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in His promises given to you through faith in Christ? There is only one way into the hope and peace that God provides. It is through repentance and faith in the love of God seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Bible doesn't just give us things to avoid. It tells of us something better to live for. God and His purposes, far more joyous because He's the maker of joy. God and his purposes are far more secure because they're guaranteed by him. And God and his purposes are far more permanent because he and his rewards are eternal. Let's pray. God, as we have spent time this morning in a a hard chapter, in a chapter full of ugliness, God, we can confess as we take a moment to look at our own lives, God, not just sparingly, but honestly that we have in the past week, the past month, the past few hours, (laughs) failed at living up to the standard that we want for ourselves, let alone the standard that you have for us, the standard of righteousness. But God, we are grateful this morning that as we sing about the Lamb of God who has taken away our sins, who is worthy of our praise, God, I pray that every heart in this place this morning knows the peace and the hope and the comfort and the joy that comes only through Jesus. And that, have, and that knowing that, we would anchor our lives, not in our performance for you, but in the God who works his purposes and who will see his people all the way to the end, till the day comes when we dwell with you forever in your glory and in your eternal joy. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.